Okay, so over the course of the retreat so far, we've dived straight into the core teachings of the Buddha, both the theory and the practice, if there's a distinction. And in the mornings, we've been exploring the practices, the different meditation techniques outlined in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness, or four domains of awareness. And in the afternoon, we've been exploring the Four Noble Truths, the framework that orients all these different practices in the direction of the deepest possible freedom of heart and mind. So just one more quick recap of these four truths, just to help us get oriented again before we go on. The first noble truth I think you're all pretty familiar with. There is suffering, stress, pain, sorrow, and satisfactoriness. And this suffering is to be understood. The second noble truth, there is a cause of suffering, which is tanha, thirsting or craving, clinging, resisting, and this craving is to be abandoned. Now for the good news, <laughs> the third noble truth, there is an end of suffering, and this cessation is to be realized. And then the fourth noble truth, there is a path that leads to the end of suffering. This is the path to be cultivated. So over the last couple of afternoons, Oren and Gil were exploring the second noble truth in terms of the causes and the conditions that support the arising of dukkha. And this afternoon, I'd like to explore the third noble truth, that by letting go of craving and resisting, dukkha comes to an end, it ceases. So finally, after hearing all of this talk about suffering, stress, distress, clinging, craving, and so on, we start to come towards the end of suffering. So this third noble truth is that there is a cure for dukkha. It's a treatable condition, a treatable dis-ease. <coughs> so here are the actual words from the text that I've been quoting. Cessation of suffering as a noble truth is this. It is remainderless fading and ceasing, giving up, relinquishing, letting go and rejecting of that same craving. Now, if you're anything like me, it's possible that on first hearing that definition, it might not sound very inspiring. And yet this cessation of suffering is also known as Nibbana or Nirvana in Sanskrit which is the ultimate goal of our practice. And like many Pali words, this word Nibbana covers a whole range of different meanings. So to give just one example from the Samyutta Nikaya, it's uh, named in terms of a whole range of different synonyms. There are just a few of them, the unformed, the unconditioned, the end, the truth, the other shore, the subtle, the everlasting, peace, the deathless, <coughs> the supreme goal, the blessed, safety, the wonderful, the marvelous, non-distress, non-affliction, purity, freedom, the island, the shelter, the harbor, the refuge, 
the beyond. So even with all those synonyms, the meaning of Nibbana can still be quite hard to grasp, which perhaps because it's pointing to the experience of non-grasping. But on the other hand, the non-graspability of this term can make it seem mysterious or esoteric or unreachable. So I thought I'd like to start by just sharing a few uh, reflections from some different respected meditation teachers that highlight some of the different aspects that this word Nibbana is pointing to. So the English monk Ajahn Sumedho says, a difficulty with the word Nibbana is that its meaning is beyond the power of words to describe. It is essentially undefinable. Another difficulty is that many Buddhists see Nibbana as something unobtainable, as so high and so remote that we're not worthy even to try for it. Or we see Nibbana as a goal, as an unknown, undefined something that we should try to somehow attain. Most of us are conditioned in this way. We want to achieve or attain something that we don't have now. So Nibbana is looked at as something like that, that if you work hard, keep the sila, meditate diligently, devote your life to practice, then your reward might be that eventually you attain Nibbana, even though we're not really sure what that is. So Ajahn Chah would use the words, the reality of non-grasping as his definition for Nibbana, realizing the reality of non-grasping. That helps to put it in a context because the emphasis is on awakening to how we grasp and hold on, even to words like Nibbana or Buddhism or practice or sila or whatever. So this non-grasping is a key aspect of Nibbana. And Upasika Ki Nanayan, she was a highly revered female Dharma teacher in the 20th century Thailand. And she says, your study of the Dharma has to be a study inside, not a study of written words or spoken words. It has to be a study of the mind, pure and simple, so that it will know its own features and characteristics while it maintains its normalcy or maintains itself in emptiness an emptiness that doesn't latch on to anything. When the mind is embroiled, if you latch on to the idea that my mind is embroiled, or if when the mind is empty, you latch on to the idea that my mind is empty, both of these are equal. No matter what you latch on to, you have to suffer. So no matter how things change, if you correctly know the truth of the Buddha's statement, Sabe Dhamma Anatta, all phenomena are not self, you'll simply be able to let go. Now it's possible that it's uh, still hard to get a sense of what all this is pointing to. So there's yet another way of understanding Nibbana in terms of the mind that's completely free of greed, hatred and ignorance. And this is how Nibbana is spoken of in the Anguttara Nikaya. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared, people aim at their own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and they experience mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger and delusion are given up, 
one aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and they experience no mental pain and grief. Thus is Nibbana visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. So one aspect of that quote that I appreciate is that it points to the benefits of the practice, not just for ourselves, but for others too. Because when the mind is free from lust, anger, and delusion, we protect ourselves and we protect others from ruin. So there's an ethical and an altruistic dimension to, to Nibbana that might not always be so clear when we hear terms like emptiness or non-grasping. And it's still possible that some of you might be wondering, well, how is Nibbana going to be visible in this life when the forces of greed, hatred, and ignorance often feel so predominant? Yesterday, though, Gil talked about Anicca, impermanence or inconstancy, which we might normally think of as a cause of suffering, but it's also the means by which it can be released. Because when the mind is sufficiently stable, we can start to see the gaps in the stream of craving thoughts. And the more we recognize and orient to those moments when craving is absent, the more we start to experience some degree of ease and spaciousness and equanimity. So some teachers talk about these tiny pauses in the stream of craving as being moments of temporary nirvana. This is how Ajahn Buddhadasa talked of them. He was a highly regard regarded Thai meditation master of the last century. And he talks about a process of continually orienting to these moments of temporary nirvana until eventually they convert to complete nirvana. So he says, temporary nirvana nourishes all sentient beings. If defilements were with us day and night without ceasing, who could ever stand them? Living things would either die or become insane first and then die. <laughs> One survives because there are periods when the fires of defilements do not burn. Periodical nirvana keeps all of us alive and well and is a nourishing condition, <coughs> normal to life. Why don't we know or feel thankful for this kind of nirvana? Fortunately, it is our instinct to acquire it. Whatever has any heart and mind will look for periods when the defilements or strong desires are absent. Our instincts inherently have such a quality, we <coughs> instinctively go in search of spans of time when the mind is free from defilements or desire. Whenever it happens, a little nirvana always comes in, and the phenomenon will continue until one learns how to convert it into permanent or complete nirvana. <coughs> so with this understanding, nirvana is not something lofty or remote to be experienced in some imaginary far distant future. It's available in moments right here on this retreat Whenever we remember to let go of, cr of craving, then we can experience the reality of non-grasping, as Ajahn Chah calls it. So in theory, sounds easy, just let go. 
But if it was that simple, we could just tell ourselves, okay, stop grasping now. We do it and then we could all go home. But the Buddha understood very well that letting go of craving is easy to say, but surprisingly hard to do. And that's why he gave us the fourth noble truth, a whole path of practice that sets up the conditions that support this letting go. So as a reminder, the fourth noble truth is that there is a path that leads to the end of suffering. This path is the noble eightfold path. It comprises eight different factors to be cultivated together. And don't worry, I'm not going to go into all eight of them this afternoon, but just to give you the context, the first is right or wise view. Right, and the second, right or wise intention, sometimes translated as thought. Then right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi, or stability of mind. We'll probably be talking more about those path factors later, but for now I wanted to highlight the last three factors, which are all qualities that get, get developed particularly through meditation practice. So right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi. And these three help the mind come into balance so that the most transformative insights can occur and the forces of greed and hatred and ignorance can diminish. And we've already talked quite a bit about mindfulness and stability of mind, so this afternoon I'd like to talk a little bit about right or wise effort. And this path, this factor of the path is uh, often quite challenging because as you heard from the quotes, there's, um, there's almost a kind of a paradox built into the practice. The goal is complete letting go, which includes letting go of goals. And this kind of paradox can seem a bit crazy-making at first because we're often very conditioned in two ways that lead away from the freedom that's being pointed to here. The first is that our dominant cultural conditioning is often one of achieving and attaining and getting and having and succeeding. So we get caught in craving, craving for results. And the second default conditioning is our strong conditioning to feel safe, to feel secure, to feel physically at ease, to enjoy pleasant experiences. So we get caught in craving for comfort. And these two forms of craving are both aspects of the second noble truth that get in the way of our ability to experience the absence of craving. So right effort is learning how to navigate between these two poles of craving for results and craving for comfort. And especially at first, this can take a surprising amount of effort, the effort to keep showing up and meeting whatever we experience with as much non-reactivity, as much balance as possible. And this theme of balance is woven throughout the Buddha's teachings, starting with the very first discourse that he gave immediately after his awakening. And in that discourse, he framed his teaching in terms of the middle way, which is not falling into self-indulgence on one hand, 
nor self-punishment on the other. We can think of self-punishment as being excessive striving. So learning how to stay balanced and find this middle way is a very key aspect of right effort. So that's what I'd like to take some time to explore now. But I like to just take a moment to pause and to check. When you hear this phrase, right effort, are there any particular associations or responses that you notice? Just to see. Because for some people, including myself, a common response when hearing about right effort would be something like, oh no, here we go. They think we're not trying hard enough. And they're going to start talking about how in Asia the meditators only ever get four hours sleep of night, a night. And that just makes me feel exhausted even thinking about it. In fact, I think I'll go to bed as soon as this talk's over. <laughs> For other people, a response might be more like, finally, now we get to the real practice. Enough of all that fluffy stuff about kindness and compassion. It's time to really crank it up now. No more naps for me. I'm going to try for only three hours sleep tonight, and that'll show them. And for other people, there might be not much response at all. So if that's you, you can just abide in equanimity for the rest of the talk. <laughs> so whatever your response might have been, or if there was no response, just to sort of bookmark it, and we'll come back to it later as possibly useful information. Because... As I was, I'm pointing to this word, effort can bring up all kinds of views. And if we're not conscious of them, they can drive our practice, often in ways that aren't skillful, either in either making too much effort or not enough. So whatever pattern we recognize, the key is not to get caught in self-judgment because that only drains energy in a counterproductive way. It's completely normal to have default tendencies. So getting to know what these are is useful so we can learn how to balance them out. So some of what I'm going to say this afternoon will apply to the people who have a tendency to work too hard, to be too tight, and some is going to apply to the people who have a tendency to not try hard enough to be too loose. And often when I give this talk, I wish there was a way of sort of separating the room into <laughs> those who are too tight and those who are too loose. Because I know from my own experience that we tend to hear the instructions that we like and disregard the ones we don't like. So the too tight people hear the instructions for the too loose people and decide they need to work even harder. And the too loose people hear the instructions for the too tight people and think, yes, I'm really going to slack off now. <laughs> So inviting you to make the effort to not fall into whatever your usual pattern is. So to begin with, just to talk about the tendency towards making too much effort, which, as I said, perhaps because of our dominant culture of being um, perfectionism, idealism, competitiveness, and so on, when we hear the phrase right effort, it can easily trigger self-judgment, not good enough, and the tendency to try even harder to compensate. And that was true for me early on in my own practice. Whenever I would hear this phrase right effort, I'd immediately think blood, sweat, and tears. 
and I completely was missing the right part and focusing on the effort part. And I've seen this unbalanced approach in a lot of students too, where we seem to be very binary creatures and we start out with this all or nothing kind of mentality. So we get caught in ideas of good and bad and right and wrong and success and failure. And we often start on retreat with this uh, phase of very intense striving. We try extra hard with every sitting and every walking. We push ourselves to get up early, to stay up late, force the attention back to the breath, force the attention onto every step, all of it with an unnoticed attitude of grim determination. And at best, this might last, I don't know, a couple of days, but it's usually followed by collapsing into sort of exhausted apathy. And then we find ourselves wallowing in bed or sitting in our room spacing out or secretly playing with our cell phones or whatever until eventually, usually a wave of intense self-judgment sort of propels us back into the next phase of overdoing it. And the whole cycle starts again, this swinging from striving to apathy, striving to apathy and back again. So I sometimes think of this as what I call superhero to slug syndrome. <laughs> and it's, this is often driven by the fear that unless I'm giving 110% effort, unless I'm desperately striving to be a superhero, I'm going to stall and revert back to that slug that I used to be, which ironically is often what happens. We totally exhaust ourselves in the effort to be superhuman. Then we burn out and we end up not practicing for a while. So how do we get out of this cycle? Well, the standard answer is mindfulness. We need to be aware of what's going on, to notice what's happening in our bodies, our hearts, our minds. And as we've been emphasizing, noticing how we're relating to that experience to notice what's the attitude in the mind, to see if just in the background is some form of wanting, expectation, or perhaps some form of not wanting or resistance. And with practice, we might start to notice those swings a little earlier and see if we can drop down a little deeper and recognize if we're getting caught in some kind of identification. So if there is a tendency to make too much effort, you might even ask, what would happen if I didn't make quite so much effort? Or who would I be if I wasn't doing all this striving? And just listen intuitively to the answer. It's possible that there might be some kind of anxiety or fear underneath that striving or anger it could be many different things. So whatever we encounter, can we hold that with some compassion? Whatever comes up, it's important not to take it personally because most of these patterns come from our cultural conditioning. They're not necessarily our individual shortcomings or our unique neuroses. Even the Buddha spent the first period of his practice getting caught in too much striving and then and before that in indulgence, which is exactly why he came up with the middle way. So, so far I've mostly been talking about too much effort. 
that tendency towards striving that's rooted in craving for results. But there are also times when the pendulum swings the other way and we slide in the, into the imbalance of not enough effort. The tendency towards complacency that's rooted in craving for comfort. So for some of us, lack of effort might be more of our default pattern. Sometimes this happens as a kind of backlash from having made too much effort in that superhero to slug syndrome. We hear about the need for effort and discipline and something in us consciously or unconsciously rebels and we retreat back into our comfort zones, doing everything we can to wriggle back down into that marsupial pouch that I talked of the other day. And we might think of that as a strange image, but we all have our own strategies for maximizing comfort and avoiding discomfort, even on retreat. You probably noticed that, all the different ways that we um, organize things to help us uh, feel safe, secure, comfortable, and so on. And as meditation becomes more and more mainstream, it sometimes is conflated with being about making ourselves more comfortable. I don't know about here, but at some of the other centers that I teach at, sometimes people come on retreat and get very disappointed when they, they discover there isn't a hot tub or a massage studio or an art therapy room, which is not, of course, to deny that all of those things can be beneficial. But if they're not related to with wisdom, then self-indulgence can very easily just be a rationalized, uh, rationalized self-care. And it's often a slippery slope. At least I've noticed this in my own practice, usually during longer retreats. I might start off with that phase of very rigidly following the schedule, and then after a while I tell myself, oh, you just need to ease up a bit. And it's possible at some point that might be true. But I've been amazed to notice how quickly it turns into an unconscious habit of taking it too easy. So instead of just sitting, walking, sitting, walking, it became sit one, nap one, sit a half of one, nap one and a half, walk a little bit, lie down a bit, because, you know, lying down is a legitimate posture, right? <laughs> the Buddha taught lying down meditation. But lying would turn into napping and napping into daydreaming and long periods of sleeping and so on. So still with this caveat of always listening to ourselves and finding for ourselves what is appropriate effort in each moment, I'd like to talk a bit more about the benefits of challenging ourselves. If we do notice that our practice has slid into some form of self-indulgence, so we might want to ask ourselves to remind ourselves of our deepest aspiration. We can ask, is what I'm doing now really in the service of that aspiration? Am I moving in the direction of total freedom that the Buddha offered us? And again, this freedom is not about getting comfortable by constantly manipulating conditions out there. It's about training our inner capacity to let go and to let be. And when we can do this, we're not so dependent on external conditions being a certain way in order for us to be happy. On the other hand, if our default strategy has always been to avoid discomfort, 
then we do, when we do run into life's inevitable challenges, we won't have the inner resources to meet them. And it's true that here, now on this retreat, we can ask for an extra pillow or take a hot shower or have a cup of tea or eat a piece of chocolate or take a painkiller or whatever it is that we do to, we want to do to alleviate the discomfort. But at some point, we're going to find ourselves in situations where our usual strategies aren't available to us or don't work anymore. So circling back to this first noble truth, the truth of our own aging and illness and dying, we're going to have to face into that if we aren't already. So here on retreat, we have a very valuable opportunity to train in stretching our comfort zones and this gradually extending what we think is possible for ourselves builds confidence because unless we at least try, we'll never know what we're actually capable of. So again, to explore this uh, with kindness and humor, recognizing that it's human nature to take the easy option if we have a choice, but really invite you to train in exploring the ways we might let go of our attachments here on retreat rather than continuing to feed them. And as the practice deepens, one of the attachments that sometimes gets revealed, strangely, is our attachment to dukkha itself. And on first hearing that, that might sound crazy. But if we really pay attention, we might start to notice the many ways we're almost addicted to our craving on gross and subtle levels. So sometimes that addiction shows up when we hear about the third noble truth that description of fading and ceasing and giving up, relinquishing, letting go of craving, some people find it hard to even imagine what that might be like and sometimes even feel fear in relation to that as a possibility. There's a powerful parable from Greek mythology that the translator Stephen Mitchell uses to illustrate this sort of addiction it's uh, in relation to the myth of Sisyphus. He was a king who was punished for his self-aggrandizing craftiness by being forced to roll an immense boulder up a hill only to watch it come back to hit him over and over again. And he was condemned to repeat this action for eternity. So this is how Stephen Mitchell reframes the story. He says, we tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other he even dream dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. So a few years ago, early on in my own practice, I noticed a similar way of uh, that I was addicted to dukkha. It was in a time when I was in a relationship with someone 
And like all relationships, it had its challenges. So one night I was lying in bed and I was fixating on everything that was wrong with it. Our relationship should be more like this. It shouldn't be like that. He should be more like this. He shouldn't be like that. If only he'd do X, then I'd be happy. If only he'd stop doing Y, then I'd be happy. And so on, on and on and on. And hopefully by now you recognize those kind of thoughts as classic symptoms of the second noble truth, of craving, of clinging, of attachment, of identification. But at least in the beginning of that process, I wasn't seeing it clearly and I was actually feeding it. So each thought that I had, it, was, it felt like metaphorically I was blowing up this balloon, sort of huffing another breath and it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then at some point in the middle of the night, I suddenly recognized, oh, it's just unsatisfactoriness. Unsatisfactoriness is like this. It's okay. And the metaphorical balloon just kind of popped. And I still remember a very clear feeling of release, of relief, of ease that lasted for several minutes. It was perhaps a small taste of the cessation of craving that the third noble truth is pointing to. But then, bizarrely, my mind started reacting to the absence of craving. And it was kind of like a small child wanting its balloon back. Wah! Where's my nice, giant, red, shiny balloon? There was almost a nostalgia for the dukkha, because in some sense it was familiar. It was comfortably uncomfortable. And perhaps more importantly, it gave me something to do. It gave me an identity. Me, the one who's been wronged, the one who isn't being treated right, the one this always happens to, the one who should be doing better, etc., etc. So I use the example just to illustrate how at least at first, touching into this third noble truth can bring some unanticipated reactions and it can illuminate some quite deep conditioning. For example, I saw in myself the assumption that the practice, this practice, is supposed to be hard and painful and difficult and challenging. And if it isn't, if it's pleasant or maybe even enjoyable, then I must be doing something wrong, not practicing hard enough or not going deep enough or not seeing clearly enough. I've mentioned a few times already the recent neuroscience discovery of the brain, the mind's inherent negativity bias, which means that we do tend to pay more attention to what's unpleasant and painful and distressing than to what's benign and beneficial and enjoyable. So Rick Hansen's often quoted aphorism that our minds are like Velcro for the unpleasant and Teflon for the pleasant. So to counter this negativity bias, we need to train ourselves to be aware not only of dukkha, but of the absence of dukkha. So as Gil was inviting us yesterday to keep orienting to the gaps, those moments of ease when the mind is momentarily free of wanting or resisting. So to notice them, to know them, to let them in and to appreciate them. 
start to become familiar with how the body and the heart and the mind feel when the afflictive states of greed and hatred and ignorance have gone, even if it's only for a nanosecond, because there are moments of freedom that incline us in the direction of Nibbana. So coming back to the theme of right effort, as the practice develops and as we get more skill at releasing these afflictive energies, we start to have more experiences of the third noble truth, the cessation of dukkha. And at this stage of the practice, the effort that we need to make changes. As Gil mentioned yesterday, we might notice a shift from doing to being. We're expanding our capacity to be with a wider range of experiences, some of which at first might feel quite new and unfamiliar. So just to name some of the challenges that uh, sometimes come up for people when we're experiencing these more skillful mind states uh, for the first time. So as I said earlier, because we're so used to wrestling with greed and hatred and ignorance, Sometimes when those energies become less predominant, it can feel like there's nothing happening in the practice anymore. We might think that we've stalled. We don't know what to do because there are no problems to solve. It can even feel like we've lost our mindfulness because we can't really say what we're aware of anymore. And sometimes this is because the more afflictive mind states have fallen away, but our mindfulness isn't yet quite refined enough to notice their absence and to notice the more subtle mind states and the more subtle experiences that can come up in their place. So skillful qualities such as the awakening factors or the Brahma-viharas or the spiritual faculties, qualities such as ease and calm, stability of mind, interest or kindness, confidence, joy, stillness, equanimity, and so on. So for, at first, some of these more refined states uh, can be a re an acquired taste, and we might start to discover the ways that we've been unconsciously addicted to the highs and the lows of the practice. We might be secretly searching for catharsis of some kind, or craving intensity, or perhaps even afraid of a more balanced and nuanced range of experiences. So when the practice settles into a more stable, quiet, calm phase, we might start trying to get some of that familiar intensity back again by pushing or forcing or striving. They talk about pushing the river. So sometimes this phase of the practice can be quite uncomfortable because it's a transition phase. It's almost like being adolescent again, that sort of awkwardness of puberty where we're not quite used to our adult bodies yet, or perhaps more poetically, uh, the transition of a caterpillar to a butterfly. When the butterfly first emerges from the cocoon, its wings are soft, and it has to take some time to dry them, to harden them before it's able to fly. So sometimes there are phases in the practice where these transitions um, can create feelings of shakiness or groundlessness. And then the best thing we can do is to really offer ourselves immense patience and kindness 
and try to trust that everything we're experiencing is part of the natural unfolding of the path. So a few years ago I read somewhere that in the Tibetan tradition, the word that's used to refer to meditation literally means getting used to it. And this idea of getting used to it can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. But I found it very helpful in relation to these phases of the practice that feel new and unfamiliar. When we're in new territory of some kind, we can think of the practice then as getting used to it. So as we get used to it and as these wholesome mental states start to get stronger, the amount of effort that we need to maintain them becomes less and less. And at this stage of the practice, our effort needs to be really refined. The best thing we can do is to keep trying to get out of the way, to release the habit of micromanaging, and to not judge ourselves for those times when we do inevitably get caught in striving again. Because as I said the other day, this is how we find balance, by knowing when we're off balance to one side or another. Just like the bike rider, even the most experienced rider is making micro-wobbles. And with experience, it takes much less effort to stay the course. And this kind of effortless effort is a fruit of the practice. At times we might experience it as a kind of a positive chain reaction, where one skillful quality arises and quite naturally leads to the next, and the next, and the next, in a kind of natural upward spiral. And sometimes when I think of this natural upward spiral, the image of hawks or eagles soaring on thermal updrafts comes to mind. I mentioned that I spend uh, time each year teaching in New South Wales, Australia, and a few years ago, I was uh, camping with a friend in the Warrumbungle National Park. I love that name, Warrumbungle. It's actually uh, uh, from the Gamilaroi language of uh, the Aboriginal people who are the traditional owners of that area. And it means crooked mountains, which is very appropriate because this landscape is a landscape of ancient, jagged volcanic peaks. And one of these um, range of peaks is called the Bread Knife and it really is like a serrated knife. So my friend and I um, climbed along this, this bread knife, and because we were so high, we had amazing views of several native wedge-tailed eagles that were soaring on thermal currents just above us. And these birds, they can have wingspans of between six and seven and a half feet, and they can soar for hours on end without a single wing beat. And they apparently, I just looked this up, they can reach uh, heights of 5,900 feet, sometimes even higher. And on, but on this occasion in the Warren Bungles, these birds were, because we were so high, the birds were so close that I could see all the little feathers on their underbellies. And it was a really totally magnificent sight to see these huge birds just soaring upwards and upwards and upwards on these wide, wide wings, seemingly without any effort whatsoever. So keeping that image in mind, I'd like to finish with quite a long passage from the suttas, 
And it's a description of how the momentum of our practice develops naturally when we can set up the conditions for this chain reaction of skillful mind states. And this chain reaction starts with paying attention to our ethical conduct, our sila, our commitment to non-harming. And in the sutta, this is referred to as our virtue. And when this virtue is strong, then the skillful states develop of their own momentum from that foundation of ethical conduct, just like the eagle soaring on the thermal updrafts. And then stage by stage, these mental qualities lead all the way to the highest state possible, Nibbana, which in this quote is referred to as the further shore. So I'll edit the passage slightly because it's quite long, but I think if you just sit back and let the words wash over you, you'll, you'll get the drift. For a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there's no need for an act of will. May freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. For a person free from remorse, there is no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. It is in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse. For a joyful person, there's no need for an act of will. May rapture arise in me. It is in the nature of things that rapture arises in a joyful person. For a rapturous person, there is no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. It is in the nature of things that a rapturous person grows serene in body. For a person serene in body, there is no need for an act of will. May I experience pleasure. It is in the nature of things that a person serene in body experiences pleasure. For a person experiencing pleasure, there is no need for an act of will. May my mind grow concentrated. It is in the nature of things that the mind of a person experiencing pleasure grows concentrated. For a person whose mind is concentrated, there is no need for an act of will. May I know and see things as they actually are. It is in the nature of things that a person whose mind is concentrated knows and sees things as they actually are. And then the quote continues through a few more stages to this. For a dispassionate person, there is no need for an act of will. May I realize the knowledge and vision of release. It is in the nature of things that a dispassionate person realizes the knowledge and vision of release. In this way, mental qualities lead on to mental qualities. Mental qualities bring them to their consummation for the sake of going from the near to the further shore. So may we all cultivate the skillful mental qualities 
that lead to moments of ceasing of dukkha and on to the further shore. Thank you for your attention. We'll just sit quietly for a moment. <coughs> 